Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My guest is Matt Donovan, Chief Learning and Innovation Officer at GP Strategies. Matt, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. So in a minute, we're going to talk about agile learning strategies for the modern learner. But first, for listeners who did not get to know you the first time you were on the show, say a few words about your background in L&D and about your work today. Uh, I tell you what, I've been a passionate uh, advocate for the learning systems out there. Been in the L&D space for probably over 20 years or so. So I've really enjoyed making the connection around wrapping the learners with an experience that will really benefit them where they're at at the moment of need. So that's really where my passion lies. Okay, great. So, and this passion clearly comes through in an article you recently published in Training Industry Magazine, an article called Agile Learning Strategies for the Modern Learner. And near the end of that piece, you sum things up like this, and I'm paraphrasing you here. You say... As work changes due to new technologies, individual learners need to take a proactive, modern approach to creating their own learning criteria. So let's unpack that a little bit, specifically this idea that learners need to create their own learning criteria. So what do you mean by that? Well, well, I think it first comes from the premise that the world is becoming much more disruptive. It's a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And because of all that uncertainty and complexity, learners themselves need to take more accountability to getting the things that they need that enable them to deliver value towards whatever they're trying to achieve, whether it's the work or personal or whatever. So, and part of that means you're going to have to learn new things and find that support in different places. So rather than waiting around for the traditional infrastructures of like K through 12 or higher education where everything was kind of fed to you, here's your book, maybe go on and read this online thing and all it was provided for you. When you get out there as an adult, you have to actually take more accountability for your learning, where you're going to find the right resources, the right type of information to meet a range of your learning needs. And part of that is better understanding the technologies that are being used to deliver that information, to find that information. You know, I think actually probably the simplest of all examples might be Google, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm going out there and, and a lot of folks say, if I can't find it, I'll go Google it and see what comes up. But even being able to find and use keyword searches that will actually help you find relevant resources, valuable resources, separate out people that really know what they're talking about versus people that don't things that are actually helpful practices versus things that aren't. That's what the learners have to actually learn more about is what's the authenticity of the voice, where are the sources, what's the technology access I have to that. And it's a much more involved or engaged role that the learners have to take now to actually you know, change themselves, grow themselves, really respond to the changing environment. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, technologies like Google search, right? I mean, you literally have the world's information at your fingertips which is great, but there's a lot of information out there and not all of it is of the same value. So it's not just having the technical skills to do the search, but as you said, discern between information that's actually valuable or that's authentic, right? Yeah, and even actually sorting through all of the information to be able to find, you know, now we have proverbial haystacks everywhere. I'm trying to find the needle that's gonna be valuable for myself. But it's looking actually in unique places and finding it. Let me ask you, I know that I'm going to throw a question at you. I'm intrigued to see if you know the answer. So 
in the world of curation, what do you think the largest curation site actually is? The most voluminous and the most activity in terms of probably one of the biggest curation sites would be. Hmm. Well, I'm going to guess it's not Google Mm -hmm. because that would be too obvious. One of the largest curation sites, maybe YouTube? Actually, YouTube is a good one, but I would go with Pinterest. Ah, and so okay. if you think about what Pinterest is from a curated and a user-generated content mm-hmm. standpoint, it is probably one of the most prolific curated sites of being able to find things. And so mm. in that population, who do you think the largest, most active curators are? What population might be? On Pinterest? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't use Pinterest a lot, but I'm going <laughs> to guess like maybe moms? Moms are definitely one. Teachers are another. Okay. So if you think of a population who doesn't have a lot of extra time and a lot of resources, but are constantly trying to bring new, innovative ways to teach their kids, they have found a really powerful community in the Pinterest space to be mm-hmm. able to say, hey, I need to pull together a really engaging lesson plan on weather. And does anybody have anything? So I can go into Pinterest, I can look this, and then they can actually have exercises and the materials. And mm. this is community of sharing knowledge. So they've created a user space and that actually teachers are actually feeding each other, feeding themselves. But as learners, they're able to kind of go in and figure out and how to find that information. And from there, they can then link out to other resources. Mm. I mean, they'll use Google and others and YouTube as well for supportive videos, things like that. But it was just very interesting around a vibrant community of peer excellence. So as learners, teachers have learned to really grow and adapt and find. And these are what I talk about, new ways of those social, supported, connected. That's an example that we often just don't think about. Oh, that's interesting because obviously Pinterest wasn't created initially for teachers specifically, Mm -mm. right? It was just general, but teachers are, it's one example of a group that's found a way to make it really useful. Yeah. I mean, people that have a shared interest in things coming together, but it became a very robust way. And I'm just absolutely fascinated with the creativity people bring, Mm. the number of instructional videos, the job aids, all the stuff around just, here's how I learned how to do this and let me share it with you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So- Let's talk in a little bit more detail about the workplace and how it's changing. So as you discuss in the article, digital technology is one of the main drivers of change. And specifically, technology is like artificial intelligence, which, and again, I'm going to quote directly from the article here, you say, which will push humans deeper in the value chain. It's very interesting language. So explain what you mean by that. And maybe by the way of an example that you give in the article about when you recently refinanced your mortgage. Yeah, I'll give, I think I'll give two and, okay. and, and, and it's, it's a good example. But one of the things when we talk about artificial intelligence and automation and, and the robot, there's a lot of fear out there that the humans are going to be replaced by the bots. You know, yeah. once I build them, I don't have to continuously pay. They don't take time off. You know, they'll be displacing the humans. And the reality is that the humans will never go away. The one thing is as humans, we ultimately want to connect with others. There is a need for us to be there but that we don't need to be there to do some of the routinized mundane activities. So think about a call center, for example. Mm. It's probably one of the best places. Many of us have probably called into some customer center where, you know, we an airline or a scheduling or some other type of thing. And, and you're able to, first routing you may end up with is actually a chat bot right. or a bot that's going to connect with you. And then they're able to gather information. You'll input some information. They'll start to do some routing. And then after a little bit of that intake and sorting, you may actually end up in the hands of a human who's been moved up the value chain. So instead of the human trying to figure out, hey, what are you trying to solve? What are you trying to get to? You're replaced. 
replacing that with that bot to be able to do it. Now, the humans aren't being displaced completely. They're being moved up the value chain to deal with the more complex challenges, to be able to be better prepared to deal with a certain type of problem. If I can tell you when the office hours are going to be for X, Y, or Z, let me just route you quickly to that. There's no need to talk right. to a human, get the information you need, get off, off the line. So another example I had was actually where you were talking about with the mortgage. And so I just recently refinanced my mortgage and I went through the prior process. So the old process, I had to complete an application online. I went in and met with, you know, the bank and then I had to meet with a closing agent. And that required me to completely leave my world to be able to go into those places to have contact with humans. So in my current example, when I just did this, is I was able to actually execute the entire experience from my phone. Mm. I never had to leave my, technically it was between my living room and my daughter's soccer practice where I was able to actually complete the entire mortgage application and approval process. Now, what happened is, is that they had a system that was asking me to walk me through step-by-step step on the process, upload these documents, what do you have available? And so rather than a human doing all the document management, the document handling, the processing of like walking me through this, they actually had a workflow and, and a little what I called a queuing bot that would say, hey, you're almost done with this. Mm -hmm. We need one more item for you. And can you upload that? Click here to upload that or one more thing to do. So there was an automated kind of workflow that was pushing and whatever I was missing, it would kind of pull me through. Now, throughout this entire experience, I also had what I would call my mortgage coach guy named Chad working with me. He's uh, He was actually out of Arizona, but his whole thing was he was helping me connect with me as a human on how I'm reacting to the process, not driving me through the process. Mm -hmm. The system was doing that. So he said, hey, I see you're kind of stuck on this step. What are you looking for? What can I help? How's it going? Hey, we're looking to close this up. I think I can lock this in for you. We can move this along pretty quick. So he was able to be on the phone and on the call to kind of help me through that process and match through it. And then when we were able to finish up, I closed it out and then even followed up with me, you know, a day after or two days after just to check in and see how things were going. So the thing is, is that Chad, in a sense, moved from the role of facilitating and driving the process to coaching and almost mentoring me and encouraging me through the process. And it was actually a much friendlier experience mm -hmm. going through than one I had the first time where I had to, you know, get off, go see somebody, you know, get off work, go see somebody here in for a meeting, yeah. answer some questions. I didn't have all the paperwork. I need to go there and then I got to come back and I got to do all the very complicated process. So that's just how it kind of shifts as we move up the value chain, put them where they're more powerful and in the engagements rather than dealing with some of the mundane activities. Yeah. And, and that makes the human to human interaction seem more valuable and probably overall more pleasant because the other way, I mean, I've gone through that process mm -hmm to doing it the old fashioned way. And a lot of the time you're thinking, is this really necessary? Like this just seems so inefficient. Yep. Isn't there a better way to do this? And now of course there is. And, but like you say, I mean, th there's still a very valuable role for the human being to play mm -hmm. because I mean, I'm thinking I used to, I remember back a few years ago, I tried to do my taxes using one of those automated tax <laughs> systems. Yeah. And I thought, okay, great. You know, I'll just do it. And it's very cheap, but I soon found myself getting very anxious. I'm like, I don't know if I'm doing this correctly. Am I doing it right? Yeah. Yep. And even though there were prompts, my the way that my taxes work is a little complicated. So I ended up abandoning that and using an actual person. And I'm sure there's probably a balance there too. If the program had had some kind of live chat or even a person that you could just connect with to talk you through as you're doing it, that would have made a lot of difference. But it didn't have that. Yeah. Well, and I, it's one of those things, that even you those automated workflows, 
The funny part is I think I go back to the phenomenon of really smart people and true false questions. Mm. They often don't do well with true false questions because they can see all the permutations as uh, to why something could be true or why something could be false. Right. So they overthink it. And yes. is it as simple as this or is it not? So what happens is we get these very simple questions and we, you know, being thinking individuals kind of process ourselves. Am I doing this right? Am I doing it wrong? It could be this and it might not be that. And all you needed at that moment was a human to come in and say, hey, don't overthink this. Right. So all I need you to do is write this. So you actually see a lot of the tax software is now adding in a tax coach mm, over right. that they're in the system. I can do a chat. Hey, I have a quick question right here at this point while I'm mid process. I can do a, a quick shout out for some help. Yeah, which I would think would make a huge difference. Uh, it would have made a yeah. difference for me, yeah. for sure. What's well, a positive experience? Yeah, right. You really feel like, oh, I'm, this person's really helping me in this moment when I need the help, as opposed to forcing me to sit here for an hour and like put my initials on 50 different pages. Yeah, I mean, a, a complex, <laughs> no fun task. and But you had a really positive person who's just like, hey, it's as simple as this. And you've got a really great tool. They're not trying to explain a complex system. They've got a really great performance support workflow. Right. Just the right human intervention allows you to have a really positive experience for what can be an overly negative task. Yeah. Okay. So now in, back to the article. So <laughs> in the article, you also offer strategies, agile learning strategies for the modern learner. So let's look at, at some of those strategies and starting with the idea that organizations need to support a range of learning needs. So what kind of range do you mean? What does that look like? And how can organizations make that happen? So actually, I like to use a, a model that was put forth by uh, Connor Gaffertson, and uh, it, it's used with in conjunction with Bob Mosher, but they talk about five moments of learning need. And so the premise is that at any given moment, a human has five moments when they need to learn something. And so the, you know, the first time I'm exposed to learning something, when I'm adding a little more to it, learning a little more about it, the first time when I'm trying to apply or get better at something, and then when something changes or when something goes wrong. Now, each of those moments of learning need have a different requirement of what type of information I have. So if I'm exposed to something the first time, I'm building a new understanding, a new conceptual framework, I need more time with it. I'm going to get slower with it. I'm not going to take all of that stuff. And, and sometimes when I go out there, I don't need to know every time it can go wrong. I just need to understand what the critical path is to do it or the base concept. So that's one of the ways when you think from a learner perspective is being aware of when and how you're going to need to learn something and then matching up the resources to those moments. Mm -hmm. So I'll use an example as I'm a I would say a, a blossoming um, carpenter. I'm trying to do a little more of like eh, build a few pieces of, of furniture and some things like that. So I'm working through some stuff. But imagine trying to work on building a table, for example. Mm -hmm. And so, hey, it's simple. I go in, a couple of videos, download a work plan. Simple thing. I got a flat top, four legs. You know, what's the premise? Is it stands upright and it doesn't wobble because the legs are equal? Well, Based on the video I had from uh, YouTube, a couple of things I saw and the plans, I had all the materials and I got done. And sure enough, one of my legs was shorter than the others. And they were all kind of off. They weren't, it wasn't like mm -hmm. just three and one really short one. So what happened is, is that I tried to build it the first time. The resources I had were very simple, meant to break it down very easy, very short. Here's what you need to do. Of course, they didn't show absolutely every step. They didn't show you the entire process of doing it. They showed you a conceptual of here's how you do it. Well, where did I need to go then to say, all right, when I, something's now wrong, mm -hmm. I have legs that are all missing, you know, I can keep trying to cut them, but I'll end up with a coffee table before I'm, it's all said and done, which right. is not what I wanted. So 
Then that I learn and I go out and I learn and I do research and I find some other experts talk about the creation of what's called a sled. Basically, it's a little tool, that a jig that helps you kind of on a table saw create things at equal length. I mean, it's a simple concept. Most people know about it, but if you're first time coming into it, you're not aware of it. The idea is they didn't teach you how to actually build the sled, to build the props, to actually get the legs to equal length. They just said, measure them out to equal size. And it's like due to imprecision between my tools, my ability to actually use a measure tape accurately, all that kind of stuff, I ended up with it. So what they do is this, use this tool or this template to help you do that. What I'm trying to get to is that in my ability to try and do something new, I want to build a table I've never done it before. I needed to look at the range of resources I had to meet when I first tried it, then when something went wrong, how do I error correct that? How do I find the right professionals to help me? Who do I start to trust? There's some guys out there with some bad advice, some guys with some really good advice, and you start to sort it between the different, and I say, ooh, I'm going to follow that person. That person really knows what they're doing. So again, that's where I'm saying as learners in, a, in an extremely disruptive world, things are changing. We're learning a lot of new things. We're also getting better when things are changing or, or becoming more difficult. We need to have a whole range of resources that not only allow us convergently to get better at a task, but also find resources that will allow us to innovate or divergence. Mm -hmm. Things that are near outside that space will allow us to bring in new thoughts. I want to do something different, not exactly where I'm at. But it, but it keeps feeding me things that I already know about. And I see, I want to see something close, but different. And so that's where I'm talking about. We need to become more active in our learning journeys. We mm -hmm. have to take more accountability for that and be aware how to navigate all the different roles out there. So, I mean, practically speaking for a given company, say, does this mean creating learning content across a broad range, as you've described or, and, or does it mean en enabling learners to go outside of the company's content to seek maybe to YouTube or to other resources, or is it some combination of both of those things? It is and, and, and so okay. it's both internal, being able to create a, a broader range of those from the organization, being open to external resources, but most importantly is opening up with the expectation that as learners and performers, we will contribute to that population. Mm -hmm. As somebody who, hey, I went out and tried to do this, why am I not coming back and say, I had this unique problem where I was doing this and I recommend a sled and this guy showed a great one. Now I've contributed back to the population. Here's how I solved this. Here's how I've, and that's really getting at the importance of user generated content. And it's opening that full ecosystem of all the places that it comes from. So those moments, those last ones where you're trying to apply it, something goes wrong, something changes, user generated content is really important. Yeah. internally or externally. Right. And, and that leads to another strategy that you discuss in the article, which is exactly that, that learners need to take on more responsibility mm -hmm. instead of being passive learners and just kind of consuming what's spoon-fed to you, that you become more active. You contribute to the content. You become a collector, a creator, a moderator, mm -hmm. and a mentor. But for learners who are not used to doing that, I imagine the organization needs to enable that, to create a culture that encourages mm -hmm. that, right? So what are some like practical steps that both leadership can take and that individual learners can take to make that happen in an environment where it doesn't already exist? You know, that's a really good question. And I think it gets back to at a cultural standpoint. So it's less of like, I'd say just a tactical one, two, three. I think the organization itself needs to create an expectation and the environment or the ecosystem where that learning will be promoted and enabled. They need to be able to make it as easy as possible for the folks to do it and set the expectation that that's what you will do. I mean, the first thing we have to come to grips with is that the world is moving far too fast and the organizations themselves move too slow 
to get everything you need out there. I can't, the organization can't provide everything that you need. So you have to step into that. So now the organization is taking some of that energy of trying to build everything for you, takes a step back and focuses, redirects the energy into creating the ecosystem. So what are the tools that make it easy for us to share information? Do I have an easy platform where I can actually do a rapid video, share a thought, a social collaborative space that I can actually capture thoughts and threads around calls to actions or requests for help? Do I have a place to do that? So I think it's implementing some of the tools, which are just fantastic now that allow us to socially connect, share information through print, through video, through audio, being able to quickly record a podcast and drop it out there is a simple way to do it. So through all those different ranges, make those connections and be able to do that. Creating a little time and space, but also taking time to really teach people to do that. One of the underlying principles is that there's a couple of things. One of them is really cultivating that passion for learning in the population. And that means you really commit to it. It starts at the culture of the organization to drive and pull that. But you also need to make sure that the learners themselves are bringing that to the table. The other one is really a kind of a growth mindset. And there's a lot of language out there around the concept is being open to new things, being able to quickly take those things, gain insights from them, apply them, expand upon them. That whole thing of growth versus a fixed mindset. Those are just two ways. But we talk about passion for learning, learning agility. Mm -hmm. You know, these are all key new, what I can say, enabling behaviors that Mm -hmm. we need to have. And the people that can actually master, you know, bring a passion for learning and have learning agility will actually be the high performers of the future versus those that are continuously, I learned something really, really, really well, Mm -hmm. but I know one thing. And in order for me to learn it again, I got to go really deep in a long time before I get to it. Yeah. And I think trust also is involved, right? In other words, the, the leadership of the organization needs to trust employees enough to be able to act as contributors in that way. Oh, yeah. And I say that because I think one thing that keeps organizations from going this route is the fear that, well, we need to have this content locked down. Who knows what employee X is going to say yep. and, and employee Y? Like we need to have some consistency, which is not totally irrational, right? I mean, you don't it's, just it's want not, a irrational. crazy range of content out there that you, so there has to be some editing of that, right? But it seems like the, the trick then is to find a kind of happy medium between enabling your employees to be contributors in that way while still doing quality control. Yeah, I think, and I think the funny part about that is in the conversations I've had with executive leadership around, you know, we got to control the content, we got to control the message. I said, look, let's be honest, they're already saying it. They're already doing these things. They're already talking to each other. I mean, yeah. if you try and lock down that social environment where they're going to learn and grow from each other, it just goes underground. Yeah. I mean, that's where they're going to learn from. They learn from each other. That's how they do it. So what you have to do is a proactive world that brings a discussion into the light, create the mechanism, pull those out, and then address them. I mean, one of the most beautiful things is when you get a society that actually starts to really police itself. If you think about Wikipedia, which is also another really large curated site, a database of information that brings it forward, a lot of people have the same concerns about Wikipedia, the quality of the material. And actually, you'll find that, and I and I don't have the research with me at the moment, but but essentially they did a comparison between the quality of the articles in the Encyclopedia Britannica and the refereed scientific journal sections. And they found that actually in Wikipedia they were actually more up to date, more accurate mm. than that site. Now, 
the pop culture sites where you can write, you know, what, you know, opinions and a little more of that. Sure, that was a less referee. But what they were finding is where you had mechanisms in for refereeing and the communities to validate the information. It was really strong and really robust to be able to do that. That's what you want to do is create the culture where we bring the thoughts, ideas forward. We address them and we let the performers drive that conversation. That's what we need to do to bring it in as a community. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you were describing before, often I think in a typical workplace, if you need a quick answer to something or you're slimy, you might just pop over to the next cubicle yeah. or you're, and just say, hey, do you know how to do this? And they'll, oh, sure. Or no, but I know who does. Yeah. You won't go through some official channel typically no. or wait until the company directs you to take a, you know, go to a class on that specific problem. Yeah. No. So you would never get anything done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what we do. I mean, we do have social learning structures already in place. I mean, we've been learning. This is the question is like bringing it forward, creating that culture, enabling it, setting the expectations and the rules of engagement, how we're actually going to have these really good, robust conversations. Yeah. So now finally, you recommend creating a foundation for agile coaching and mentoring. And I think the benefits of those things have been really well established. But a similar question, if you don't already have that in place, mm -hmm. what needs to happen to enable coaching and mentoring? Because I think a lot, of, a lot of organizations would agree in principle, like, yes, we want to do that. But then, they, you know, who has the time to set aside to do coaching and mentoring? Or at least that's maybe a misconception that it's this whole complicated problem that we just can't solve. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, it gets down to relevance again. It's one of the most important things out there. So coaching and mentoring when relevant, very powerful. When it's not relevant, it's not. It's a waste of time. Yeah. So the key is, is when I talk about agile or micro, it's getting to the idea of saying, let's have a focused conversation around a call to action, a relevant task or an activity or a relevant point of discussion wrap the coaching around that, the right people around that conversation. And I don't have to have the same coach for every question. So I can actually have more coaching or more mentoring relationships on smaller, more focused discussions than just an ongoing, long-term open coaching relationship which tends to fall off as we all get yeah. busy and no time to do anything. And occasionally you'll pop out and ask a question, but the idea is that you want to be able to develop relationships that can have really focused connections around a call to action. I'm trying to achieve this. And that's where I'm saying wrap your mentoring and coaching conversations around those. And you're going to get much more stickiness with it. And it's going to be more valuable to both participants. And in the article, at least, I got the impression that the idea was not just that only certain people are designated as mentors or coaches, but that ideally anyone can potentially be a mentor or a coach yep. depending on the need. Yeah. I mean, think of one of the best, I think, mentors or coaches for a new employee would be something, somebody six months already in the organization. Right. And, you know, in addition to my manager, who's been there for 15 years, in addition to the, you know, my coworker who may have been there for three years, they all have different perspectives, which are very important to me. But one of my most valuable perspectives may have been that new employees have already been there for six months and says, very fresh on it. This is what I wish somebody had told me. This is what I wish I had seen. And then even be able to say that, hey, it's not even just one, but I have two or three of them yeah. that are able to support that. So yeah, really opening up your concept and being open to insights can come from a variety of levels. The ability to be able to connect those or make those connections, that's the important part. So we want to wrap them around. And I think that's one of the most dedicated ways is to start with mapping your performance support network when you start out. 
Mm-hmm. Who do I go to to get support again? Yeah. Where are my experts? Where are my peers? Starting to build that. Everybody that I meet in an organization, I should be thinking about uh, help me get better directly at what I'm trying to do. How will they help me innovate? What can I help them do? How will they be able to help me? So I start to think about my connections and my networking in a different way. Yeah. Other than just, hey, let's connect to make sure that you know I've got your contact information. And if I think of something, I'll reach out to you. Yeah. I now have a way of how I'm thinking about how I integrate them very deeply into my active network. Yeah. And insofar as an organization can help facilitate that, all the better, right? Because I think that naturally tends to happen in maybe a kind of haphazard way, Mm -hmm. which is okay. I mean, there's an organic kind of element to it. But as much as an organization can facilitate that without totally controlling it or controlling it to too great a degree, that would sound like something beneficial. Or, Or even, I think even probably one of the more realities is we hit what's called collaboration overload. Mm. I have too many people, too many things. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to actually connect with them. I got too many people asking me questions or I got right. too many people and I can't find the right person. And the idea is that that is a reactive way to actually building our network and connecting with folks and the things without thinking about what's the meaning of our connection. Yeah, That's how you get more thoughtful and actually have better outcomes. People don't naturally think about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all start off with, hey, you know, nice to meet you. I may hear of your title, but am I really thinking and listening about more dimensionality than maybe the work you do or the position you hold? Mm-hmm. The question is, is how can we enter into some type of a, a relationship that helps me learn better or I can help you learn better or share or gain insights that I can't through other more formal informational systems? Right. Okay. So – What's at stake here, the, sort of the big picture? What do organizations stand to gain from enacting the strategies we've been discussing? And the other side of the coin, what do organizations stand to lose if they fail to evolve their learning strategies? Uh, you know, I think I've been thinking a lot about this, and I, and I think it actually, the evolution of L&D organization as its criticality, and I think it, it maps to what I think of in the supply chain industry. 20 some odd years ago. I forget exactly how long it's been. But if you think it at one time, and I, I realize I'm being quite reductionary, but but supply chain management used to be about location of warehouses, unions, price of gas, routes, you know, a lot of those factors. I mean, it was complex, but it was a, a cost containment side of the organization trying to figure out, I got to store some things, I got to get something somewhere. That's really what supply chain was. And then when you had the advent of Walmart and and Amazon really taking a hard look at supply chain management, there was a point where you had a new focus on. Now, supply chain management gained a whole new layer, the use of data, the use of advanced logistics thinking. The concept of supply chain management changed very quickly, and it became more complex and evolved. And then you had all of a sudden a division between old supply chain thinkers and new supply chain thinkers. And you look at the companies that embrace it, the Amazons, the Walmarts and others and Sears and Kmart. And you look at that. So when you ask me what's at stake with the very thing of like, we know that the humans are at the core of this. If we don't change the way as organizations, we enable them and they at themselves, learners don't change the way that they actually learn and perform in the space. It can have quite adverse impact on the organization down the road. You will see organizations and their cadre of learners that will embrace this and they will be able to respond, take advantage of disruption, continuously evolve, shift to the next trend, be able to do that. Then you'll have organizations that won't be able to. And they'll still operate. They'll still be around, but 
and we'll have diminishing opportunities as they grow. So I think there's a lot at stake because humans in the workforce, humans in thinking, humans in participating and evolving doesn't go away. It's only going to get more important. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, really what ultimately can be at stake is the survival of your company. I mean, if you have diminishing opportunities, eventually that will lead to zero opportunities. Yeah. At least potentially. And then you're done. Yeah. And you look at most of the big companies we have are really powered by a lot of humans and the thought and what they bring. It's it's not just have a transactional thing and it actually requires very few humans to run on it. It's actually many of them require a lot of that human change, making the connections, innovating, all those kind of things. Yeah. Okay. So Matt, what is the main thing that you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? Some, Some words of wisdom. So I think probably as a learner, and we all are learners, I think, you know, thinking more critically and I would say about what it is, when, how, and who I need to surround myself in order to learn. I think that's probably the simple thing is training ourselves to become better at that building the learning systems we need to do to support ourselves. I think that's the biggest call to action is every single one of us is learning something new every day. I mean, we just rolled out new features in Microsoft Office, and I'm having to learn a whole new platform set of tools. We had it before. We've got new ones, and I guarantee it'll be another one in another year and a half, and I'm going to have to continue to do that. My productivity is directly affected on my ability to master this. I, as a learner, need to be able to continue to deliver value to my peers, my partners, my company. So that's just an example of my call to action is that we all need to find those ways in which we're continuously learning and growing lean into that, think beyond what we've been experiencing in the past. All right. Well, Matt, thanks very much for once again spending time with us on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts. Thanks. Glad to be here. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.